Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everyone. I'm Andrew. And there's kind of been a little bit of a change uh, in our session here based off what Ian talked about last night. You see, the problem was in researching and preparing for this talk on the Good Samaritan, I deep dived into Oregon and he said that the man who fell upon by the robbers was Adam on the way from paradise, Jerusalem, to the world, Jericho. And he fell upon bad guys. And then the priests, which are the law, and then the Levite, the prophets, pass by. But Jesus comes and saves humanity and takes him to the inn, the church. And there the innkeeper, the bishop, receives the two sacraments. Um, and then he waits for Jesus to return. So it's a bit awkward because Ian said that that's all baloney, right? <laughs> so at 11.55, I'm set to give a talk. And so I need some help, right? But that's okay because I also hold to this other idea. Um, I'm a pretty strong reformer. And there was big debates about the place of scripture and authority and where we hold that. And one of their old school words was perspicuity. I like it because it's a funny word. Like perspex, it's about clarity. And the reformers hammered the idea that the Bible is clear. That if you have the Holy Spirit and you're able to read through ordinary means, the text itself will be clear. It's not clear in the passage of the Good Samaritan that Jerusalem is paradise and Jericho is the world. That's not very clear at all, right? So what I need your help to do, by the time we get to 11.55, I hope I'll have a 20-minute talk written. So I need your help. (laughs) In your passage, and this is another reason why I like life groups. Every week, we sit around without, you know, necessarily commentary 
without the use of you know, John Piper, John Stott, John MacArthur, John Calvin, without the use of those people, we can read what it says and we can understand what it means and apply it to our lives. In your booklet, there's a couple of little headings, structure, main point, application questions. This is really convenient because it'd be good if we can kind of wrestle here. So this is like a workshop on the text before I come and speak to help me out here to work out what it says. So I'm wondering, in this passage, this is open-ended. This is not rhetorical questions. There might be a microphone or you can just speak loud. From this Good Samaritan text, you've probably heard it before. Is there anything that stands out to you? We're just going to look once again at the Bible passage. Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Word of the Lord. Well, this talk is about the second rock uh, of the weekend. It, the first rock we saw was about the importance of mission and our commitment to that. One wins one. And this is something Christians must be on about. But there's more to the Christian life than just this one rock in being a disciple. And this talk and the next two, I think, are on about our relationships. Today, this talk, we are to look to others to help. And then the next one, we are to look to Jesus for instruction. And then we are to look to God trusting in prayer. And so this story today, I think, kicks off kind of a two-parter. 
because it talks about the twofold love towards God and neighbor. And in this talk, it is about love towards neighbor. And I think the next one is about love towards God. And so as noted, this whole discussion and Samaritan story, it comes after the great initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And on the face of it, this is a great question, a good fundamental question seeking to answer a whole bunch of existential angst. And Jesus has asked this question again in Luke 18. And I think lots of people today might have this type of question like they did back with Jesus. People are searching. Do you know people around you who are uncertain about life after death? Many people don't know what's out there. There are those who act out in blind faith, encouraging euthanasia because they think they go to a better place. But they don't know that for sure. There are people out there who are taking a bet with their life that there's nothing after this one. But they don't know for sure. Christians, on the other hand, we know there is life after death. Jesus in particular knows all about this and our hope rests in his teaching and experience of this. But as you guys noted, how Jesus answered this question. And maybe he answers with a question because he can read the tone. In verse 25, he says, the question was to test Jesus. This lawyer guy, who asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to see if Jesus knows what he knows. Is Jesus right according to his standards? Does he agree with him? So Jesus engages by asking another question. Well, what do you think? To the lawyer, the guy who can study the old text. Surely he already has an idea on how to get to eternal life. And he comes up with a good one, a good answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to also love your neighbor as yourself? That's a good answer, right? It's a biblical one. In Mark 12, Jesus would also use this answer, this text to answer what the greatest commandments are. And the first half of the answer about loving God with everything you have is from Deuteronomy 6.5. And most pious Jews, most religious Jews, would perhaps recite that twice a day. It was quite a common phrase. And Jesus says this answer is correct. But I think he answers with a little bit of tone himself. I think he says to the lawyer, well done. Give it a go. Try and do this. All the best with that. Good luck. And this guy who wanted to test Jesus puts forward his answer of eternal life. And Jesus says, sure, give it a go. And upon reflection... I wonder if there's tension between the two. If this is what someone really believes, why doesn't the answer crush the lawyer? Because when you think about it, the, even the first bit about loving God with everything you have is a high ask. To love God with all of your being, your heart, your soul, strength and mind, it's a crazy standard. Have you met that? Can you do what the Old Testament is asking? And the lawyer's framework is, if you do this, you'll get eternal life. But I think Jesus has a different framework because we must not forget 
where they are right now. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. In the last chapter, he's resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He's on the way where he will make a way for us to have eternal life. He will achieve that on our behalf because he will love and obey God with all that he has. So with this lawyer, with this tension in this question, with this kind of awkward pause and self-reflection, he asks another question to justify himself. Has his answer already condemned him? Does he know he actually doesn't stand up to loving God, uh, the loving his neighbour? So he asks, who is his neighbour? And in one sense, maybe, the focus on loving those around him is the valid focus. For technically, you know, God is altogether lovely. He's lovable. He's all right. We could find it easy to love God, but others around us, they can be hard, right? People are fickle, they're hard, demanding of our time, they're different to us. Others can be hard. And this liar might have a touch of self-righteousness to his answer, assuming he's done the loving God bit, but not the neighbour. So he wants to know, technically, he's a lawyer, technically, what is the legal definition? Who is my neighbour? The struggle he identifies with is knowing who to actually love. And this is a good technical question, right? Because if answered, it will narrow to a group of people. It might be more manageable. He's seeking a minimum obligation. There's an assumption in the question that there are people out there who are non-neighbours. But Jesus will go on to refute this limited scope. So in direct response to the question of who is my neighbour, we get the story. And it's kind of a setup like a joke. There was a priest, a Levi and a Samaritan. <laughs> and this nondescript man was going to Jerusalem to Jericho. And we're not told who he is. Maybe the lawyer's meant to read himself into the situation. And this trip, the, the, Jericho, the Jerusalem to Jericho road, is notorious for being dangerous. There's like 400 years of writing talking about how bad this, this road is. One commentator said, you would think with a frequent trip between Jerusalem and Jericho that either the Jews or the Romans would have improved it. But he goes on to say, I guess it's easier to maintain a religious system than to improve the neighborhood. <laughs> the trip was 27 kilometers long, wound its way through deserts, past caves where robbers would hide in. And a, a modern day setting could be something like, there was a young woman in Sydney walking through King's Cross alone at three o'clock in the morning. A bit of tension there. So in the story, the guy gets jacked and left half dead. But then a priest comes on the journey. But the priest sees the man, goes on the other side. Likewise, the Levite comes. If you don't know, the Levites, they're in charge of maintaining the temple, assisting the priests in sacrifices. They're on the music team doing the, the songs, <laughs> right? They were assisting in the ongoing work of the, the temple. But both these religious holy people, they don't stop. And we're not told why. Were they worried 
that if the person was actually dead, if they touched him, they would be unclean? Were they worried that it's the trap? If they stop, they too will get jacked. Maybe there's a sick relative at home that they have to like quickly go home to. But we're not told of their motives. And so I think that's not the point. I think the point comes along right after the Samaritan. And upon entry of a Samaritan to the Jewish listeners, they wouldn't have had high expectations for this guy. In the last chapter, in Luke 9, James and John, they wanted to call fire down on some Samaritans and have them destroyed. There's historical bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans for hundreds of years. In the Mishnah, this is a document with lots of Jewish oral traditions written down. It says, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. That's meant to be an insult. <laughs> Jews and Samaritans, they weren't friends. They were to the north of Israel. They intermarried and they went to war against Israel. They caused headaches for Ezra and Nehemiah when he was rebuilding the temple and the, the walls of Jerusalem. And at this time, they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't hold to the prophets or the wisdom literature. And so they kind of weren't pagans, but in the Jewish mind, they were still wrong. It might be like how we might consider the JWs. They kind of use our texts, but they've perverted it and modified it and they're still wrong. And so enter, enter this anti-hero this heretic, this historical enemy to the Jews, he stops on the road and does all the good things. He takes pity on the man, bandages his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for his expenses at the cost of two days' wages. And so at the climax of this point, after telling this almost one-dimensional story, Jesus asks the lawyer, the kicker of a question, Right In verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just says the one who had mercy. He was the good neighbor. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So as noted, Jesus doesn't exactly answer the question, does he? Who is my neighbor? Jesus reframes the question, uh, a different question that we should ask ourselves. So we see Jesus doesn't say who is in and who is out. The point Jesus makes in saying go and do likewise, I think is for, uh, for you to ask yourself, not who is my neighbor, but am I a good neighbor? Jesus turns the question on its head. There's no dividing walls between people who we are to show mercy to and who we don't show mercy to. We don't have any excuses. The question is, will you help those in front of you, regardless of race, sexuality, or whatever? And we may assume it's only natural for us to think that this way towards our fellow human beings. But 
That's not really the case. The premise of the lawyer's question is that somehow there are people who aren't our neighbours, that we aren't responsible for caring for everyone around us. I don't know if you remember when Princess Diana died in France, the paparazzi there were faced with being charged with a French law for failure to assist a person in danger. They called it the Good Samaritan Law that was there to enforce bystanders to act and come to the aid of people they don't know. I didn't know Ian was going to do a Seinfeld reference, but also in the last episode of Seinfeld, they incorporated this Good Samaritan law into the final episode. The characters got locked up because they didn't help a carjacking. Instead, they were making jokes about the situation and they went to prison because... Uh, was the line, because they, uh, they were all making jokes, they ended up for criminal indifference. And I think it's interesting that in some countries, Western countries mostly, have this law enforcing the idea that we should care for each other. On the 15th of February, 1942, John Curtin, uh, ex-Prime Minister, uh, he was at this rededication of St. Nina's Church in Lynham. He was an agnostic, but he spoke at the dedication and he talked about the fatherhood of God was closely related to the brotherhood of man. And this sentiment of the brotherhood of man, I think was pretty common in the late 19th, early 20th century. It's got this enlightenment feel that we are all comrades, all equal, and working to web together for some common goal. But I think Jesus does something slightly different. I think he's talking about the neighbourhood of people. Even if we don't have a common goal, even if we disagree politically or religiously, we are to care for each other. We are to be a good neighbour to others regardless. And Richard Dawkins, low-hanging fruit, I know, he thinks that all religions, including Christianity, only look after themselves and they don't look outwards. I've read this quote in a sermon once before, but it's good. He says in his God Delusion book, Christians seldom realise that much of the moral consideration for others, which is apparently promoted in both the Old and New Testament, was in originally intended to apply to a narrow, defined in-group. Love thy neighbour didn't mean what we now think it means. It meant only love another Jew. Dawkins doesn't get that the good Samaritan was a Samaritan. That he was someone from a different group other than the Jews. Dawkins misses the exact meaning of the story. So where does this all leave us? The Good Samaritan, he encounters someone in need and he helps them. And Jesus encourages us to do likewise. The lawyer, I think, didn't go away self-justified. I think the expansive model that Jesus put forward was too big for him. And it is huge. And the idea is that, and the, and the idea is that is what Jesus did. He rescued us, regardless of who we were. And so now we can live out the ideal of being a good neighbour to others. Not to earn our salvation, 
It is not by our obedience that we are saved. It is by Jesus' obedience that we are saved. But it is the gospel that transforms us, that we can go and do likewise as we follow in the feet of Jesus who shows mercy to those who are broken. Disciples, those who come and follow Jesus, find their lives so transformed that they are asking how they can be a good neighbour. That is what Christians do, and kind of even today is expected of Christians in society. And it's what James has been saying in his letters. Last week, true religion cares for the vulnerable and is uncontaminated by the world. So how do we live? I think if, if you think about all the needs in the world, all the needs around us, I think that can paralyze us sometimes. It does with me. Because there's so much need and I have so little. What can I do? Where can I start? And I think maybe start with those who you come across. The Samaritan was already on his way and came across the injured man. Start where you are. They were just right there in front of them. That would be a good start. One biblical framework I've heard in thinking about who Christians are to do good to is this. You are certainly to do it to your family, especially to believers, always to the poor and needy, and at all times to everyone. In your family, ask, am I being a good husband or a good wife? Am I being a good parent? In your workplace, you might want to ask two questions. Am I being a good employee? Am I being a good co-worker? Those two answers might be different. At St. Matt's, am I being a good church member? Am I being a good life group member? When you're shopping or driving on the road, am I being a good citizen? These questions might cut to the heart of what real practical Christianity is and to consider your place in the immediate. But it begs the question, doesn't it? What is the good? How do we know what is the good we are to do? What is the standard? And I think it's not about ability. I think the category isn't about performance, but about character. To be very specific in our passage, it says it was the man who had mercy who was upheld. It was his mercy that led him to action. It was his mercy for someone in need that led him to stop and help at his own expense and time. And as Christians, I hope you can say you have experienced mercy from God. I hope you can say that you know what it's like, that you have seen what you once were and what you are now and how God has shown you mercy or compassion or forgiveness, that God hasn't given us what we deserve. God didn't just think he was too busy or to help us in our, indifferent pl in our plight. He wasn't indifferent to us. But instead, God saved us out of darkness. He withheld his punishment to us and gave us eternal life. And this mercy, I hope you can say, has changed you, affected you. And so you can show this mercy to those around you who are in need. And we don't have enough time to press into real hard specifics. Is there a work colleague you need to show mercy to? Is there a child you need to ask forgiveness to? When, when you walk past the guy in the street with a sign asking for money, what does your heart say? Do you need to change your attitude towards them? Because the same guy 
who told us the story about the Samaritan would go on to demonstrate his love and mercy towards us on the cross. So think back to God, who he is. Be motivated by his love and mercy that's been shown to you. And so as you see a need in front of you, think, am I a good neighbour? And go and do likewise. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in your Son who died for us and gave us eternal life. I pray, Lord, that we would have mercy on those around us as we reflect back you and the example that you have shown in us and that have we experienced it, we pass it on to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.